0: we bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon just a minute ladies and gentlemen i think something is happening
1: good evening i hope you'll excuse me if i appear a trifle excited we're only interested in one thing can you tell a story Bob? can you make us laugh can you make us cry can you make us want to break out enjoy your song we move fast can you take it no matter what you do now you're still part of everything that's happening Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh-huh. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Bra- Dream. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for.
2: Welcome to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1946's It's a Wonderful Life, written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra, and directed by Frank Capra. Here's a clip.
1: Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and next year, and a year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet, and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a 100 stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Well, you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? Gals, can't you come out tonight? Buffalo gals, ah, can't you come out tonight? Dance by, by, the by the light of, of the moon. moon. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come no. on, tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Mary? What do you want you you want the moon just say the word and i'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down hey that's a pretty good idea i'll give you the moon Mary. right i'll take it
2: all right that was a clip from it's a wonderful life directed by frank capra this movie premiered in december 20th 1946 but we are going to take a look at it today all thanks to Ricky d
0: you know this was the first year of the khan film festival And I'm not sure if this movie screened at the Cannes Film Festival.
2: You'd think that something from Capra probably would have, just because at that point he had established a name for himself.
0: Not just that, Um, but he actually started his studio, Liberty Films. And this was, I believe, the first movie he produced, directed for Liberty Films, which kind of is the result of the production company not succeeding because... This movie was not a box office success. It was a huge flop. For whatever reason, people just did not want to watch this quote-unquote feel-good Christmas movie, even though I don't really think it's a feel-good Christmas movie. But yeah, it was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. It did not win any awards. It made no money at the box office. It was a huge flop. And from my understanding, I could be wrong, this movie really only became popular in the 80s because it became public domain, and so, therefore, every single network, every TV station was playing this movie over the Christmas holidays because it was public domain and they could. And so everyone started watching it.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think Capra's films, by the time this movie got its popularity, Capra's films, which were popular, he, he had made a lot of popular movies. Um, they had kind of fallen out of favor with audiences who did not like his sort of sentimentalism or at least what they perceived As overly sentimental movies. I, I'm sure we're going to argue that today. I definitely think that while Capra takes a rosy view of life in certain ways, he does not ignore its flaws and. He doesn't ignore the world's flaws at all, and in fact, It's Wonderful Life You know, is, is the kind of movie that could make you depressed if it wasn't for that corny ending.
0: Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I think this movie is depressing, but I also think it's depressing in terms of like Frank Capra's career as a filmmaker and even Jimmy Stewart as an actor because it's, I think, the last great movie he made. And he only made, I think, about five or six movies after It's a Wonderful Life. They both had just come back from the war, Frank Capra and Jimmy Stewart. And you could tell watching this movie that Jimmy Stewart, he's a great actor, but he's clearly traumatized. And I think a good part of his performance comes from the fact that he just came back from the war. I mean, he looks like a broken man. And that's one of the reasons why I find this movie so depressing is his performance As good of a person George Bailey is, he he just has, like, the worst luck. Yeah,
2: he does. So, yeah, I was going to say, like, as far as Stewart goes, you can tell there's a big difference when you watch him in Mr. Smith, 1939's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, versus what he seems to be in this movie. And granted, he's playing two different characters, but it also seems like that idealism, even when he's playing younger George Bailey. Mm Mm-hmm. Is tinged with a little, little bit of, you know, cynicism, and that was not the case, of course, for that character in Mister. Goes to Washington. But it also wasn't the case for Jimmy Stewart's face, and the what the places he's required to go in this movie. I don't know if he could have gone there if he had not been through what he'd been through, because he definitely he gets desperate in this movie and uh, and loses faith. So may, it's it's possible life experience uh, taught him how to do that a little bit better, you know. By the time he he made this movie
0: there are five shots in which jimmy stewart's character george bailey walks up to the camera to the point where there's this massive close-up on his face where it looks like a fisheye lens like a wide-angle lens right and the devastation that we see on his face is unreal like i won't go so far as to say this this is his best acting performance i still think that he's better in rear window which is one of my favorite films of all time i love that hitchcock movie but his performance here is incredible but it's not just his facial expressions and mannerisms his uh his spirit like you say he lost faith in this in and in, in this movie it's kind of like the character George bailey loses faith in the townspeople um his, it's his physicality like jimmy stewart's really skinny in this movie more so than his previous films and he's bald like he's wearing a toupee or a wig or something and i never knew this but when there's a scene in which they're uh, they're all dancing at high school and the floor the gym the floor of the gymnasium opens up and so they all fall into the like the swimming pool mm-hmm. when he falls into the swimming pool he loses his his wig or his toupee so you <laughs> actually see him bald
2: I've never noticed that.
0: It's really, really bizarre. (laughs) So here's the thing about It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm sure I'm not alone, but I would like to say I've seen this movie like hundreds of times. But in reality, I've only seen this movie three times. I've seen this movie every single year playing in the background. So I watch a scene here, a scene there. I remember we used to always play when I worked at the video store. But to sit down and watch it from start to finish, I've only actually done it three times. The first time when i was a kid the second time when i actually bought the dvd and and this week when i actually want to prepare for this podcast i've never seen it in color i never want to see it in color i never
2: i'm never going to that's an option folks don't do it <laughs> don't take that option
0: but patrick man this movie is um it's 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 not his best movie <clears throat> um uh, it's not it's not frank capra's best movie but I would say it's maybe the greatest Christmas movie ever made.
2: Yeah, it's not. I mean, I'm going to always save. I, I think you were talking about It Happened One Night um, being maybe your favorite. I'm a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington guy. I will always put that movie up on a, on a high, high pedestal. Um, and I love I love it. it Happened One Night as well. I have not seen You Can't Take It With You, and I want to, because that was the other Jimmy Stewart, Gene Arthur, Gene Arthur uh, collaboration with Frank Capra. And I'm going to see that very, very soon, as a guarantee, because I love Jean Arthur. And she even was you know originally wanted for the Donna Reed role in this movie. But uh, she had a prior commitment on Broadway.
0: Which, by the way, is a good thing, because one of the best things about this film is the chemistry between Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart.
2: Yes. Jean Arthur had a different kind of, like, um, I don't know, she, she was, she could, I don't think she could have played this character. Let's put it that way. She and Jimmy Stewart had another chemistry that worked, but it was more argumentative, I don't think she could have played this role as well.
0: I don't think so either. The telephone scene, the chemistry is incredible. Mm. I was reading an interview with Jimmy Stewart and um, he said that it was the first time he had ever been close to a lady since returning from the war. So he was like super nervous. And the, oh. uh, the scene we see in the film is the one and only cut that they actually did. Like They only filmed the scene one time.
2: Oh, they only did one take of this They film? only did one this... take,
0: yeah. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what I read in an interview. They only did one take, and they they were actually missing dialogue. And so someone wanted, I don't know if it was the director or whoever, wanted them to redo it, and he refused to redo it. Frank Capra said that it was perfect. He could not get over the, how great of a performance they did and the, the chemistry between the two actors. So they just decided to, to, to not do any more takes and, and use that specific take.
2: That's where I bring up the Edward line. Are you sure you don't want protection? Um, <laughs> at least at least do one more take.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, maybe they did. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm uh, not remembering this properly. But one thing's for sure, that is the first take. Regardless if they did a second, third, or fourth take, they took the original first take. That is what we get. And, yeah. and the reason why it was risque back in 1946 was because this was during the code era in Hollywood, right?
2: the haze code for anybody who doesn't know
0: right and so there's a lot of things that you couldn't do but you know what's weird though is at the end of the movie right so like there's this thing with like things you could do and could not do and so one of the things you could not do was you couldn't have a character get away with a crime so basically the idea is that crime cannot pay so at the end of a movie if someone commits a crime they need to be punished But the person in this movie who commits the crime, Mr. Potter, never gets punished. So somehow, I don't know, they got away with it.
2: Well, they, years and years later, would punish Mr. Potter on a Saturday Night Live sketch um, where the townspeople and George beat him mercilessly. Um, But... uh... Yeah, he gets away with it. I, and I always thought, like, okay, I was always trying to rational, uh, rationalize that out of my mind. Is it because he wasn't trying for the money? Like, he did, his aim wasn't to get $8,000, the $8,000 that Uncle Billy was supposed to deposit that Mr. Potter, you know, finds and keeps and doesn't tell anybody about, which causes George to almost be arrested for embezzlement. Um, his goal is the money is to get George Bailey in trouble and to get rid of the, the savings and loan. Now, that doesn't happen, so did Hollywood basically say, like, well, he didn't win? He didn't actually—the crime was never committed because George Bailey never went to jail? I, I don't know, <laughs> but he did steal $8,000, so that is a crime. Yeah, but
0: the problem—the the, the weird thing is, when this movie was released, the FBI had to investigate because they thought— someone filed a complaint, I'm not entirely sure who, but the complaint was the movie was viewed as— a communist propaganda film in where the bankers were villainized, and so Mr. Potter is one of the bankers. I mean, George Bailey himself is technically a banker too, right? He's a banker,
2: and Mr. Potter, by the way, owns banks. So they, the way that George Bailey talks about banks is as if banks are evil. In fact, he tells people like, "Ah, oh, don't worry, the banks will be open in a week. You're gonna you're gonna be fine. We'll keep you tied it over." It's Potter, the owner of the bankers, that he has a problem with.
0: But for whatever reason, they thought that they villainized bankers in general, which is really weird. But I think the reason why they were able to get away with it was because they justified it where Mr. Potter doesn't actually win. And he does get punished because George Bailey ends up getting the money from all the townspeople. So therefore, he's able to save himself and save the town. And, and Potterville's is never built and born.
2: So. Yeah, the punishment is that the saving and loan will continue on. It's not an you know uh, adequate punishment for the fact that Potter still stole eight thousand dollars, which back then was more than a house would cost. Um, so that in that sense, he doesn't get punished. Like he he should never he should have got punished for that eight eight grand. And they probably had something in the original script about that, but maybe it just didn't fit the ending of the movie because it's kind of perfect the way that it is. You didn't really need to flash over as to what happened to Potter. Um, by the time the end of the movie rolls around, we really, really don't care. But yeah, I, look, you can watch this movie and, and talk about the politics of this movie and they are pretty interesting. I mean, Cape, uh, Frank Capra, obviously, you know, he, he is an immigrant filmmaker. He came from communist, uh, you know, came from communism to America and obviously had a, uh, a love for America's version, you know, of democracy. Um, so that is reflected in, in, in many of his movies, but he, you know, he he made movies mostly about uh, individuals and about he he loved propping up the individual and the small community. He loves the small community. I'm not really sure where anybody's getting communism from this movie. From there are people taking care of each other. <laughs> I, I think don't know, man. Just, you got to ask the FBI. <laughs> a, yeah, I know. And, well, they also, I mean, he also had a problem with Mr. Smith goes to Washington. with The Senate didn't even want him to release the movie because it made them look bad.
0: Well, and and the thing is, this movie was released in 1946. So I'm assuming it was also made in 1946 when they just got back from the war. World War II ended in 1945, if I'm not mistaken. But in the movie, okay, first of all, Frank Capra is of Italian descent. Like, he was born in Sicily. And there are characters in this movie who are Italian, the owners of the bar, for example, Martini. Martini. And so Italians weren't really popular at the end of the 40s because of oh. World War II. Because Mussolini. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he still, he still included these specific characters, the, the Italians who owned the bar, and that was very interesting, especially because of what happens when in the last 20, 25 minutes of the movie and George Bailey never exists, what happens with the bar and the Italians who own the bar who sort of become bad guys. I mean, everyone becomes a bad guy to some extent. Um, This movie is like really fascinating. Like it's really interesting. Like watching it from start to finish, I didn't realize how good of a movie it was. Like I've always realized it was a good Christmas movie, but it's not just a good Christmas movie. It's a great movie. It's like one of the greatest movies made in the '40s, one of the greatest movies ever made. It's one of like I'm a huge fan of Frank Capra. Frank Capra, like the way he captures the performances from the entire cast. Like this is a movie which, by the way, it's like it's it's like his all star crew, right? Like every yeah. single actor who's ever been in a bunch of his movies that he really really loved appears in this movie, even if it's just like a small role, right? Yeah, you have like these they, like these great performers like Donna Reed. Uh Lionel Barrymore, which I think is Drew Barrymore's like granddad or great uncle or I don't so, know.
2: Something like that. Their yeah. Family, yeah, I'm yeah, they're, sure they're family, yeah. Yeah, they're related. Um I love Thomas Mitchell. He's Thomas Mitchell's one of my favorite capper regulars. Has
0: Uncle Billy. He's, uh,
2: he's Uncle Billy. Yeah.
0: yeah. And um and Gloria Graham, who plays Violet. <laughs> Gloria Graham's an interesting character because she married Nicholas Ray and her actual real life story is fascinating because she had an affair with their child or his son i don't think it was her son i think it was his son who they she later married <laughs> it's really weird like she she was having an affair with a 13 year old boy and he found out about it and so clearly they got divorced and later she married Nicholas Ray, uh, Nicholas Ray by the way, the famous film director. A uh, very bizarre Hollywood story right there. <laughs> yeah, anyways, there's a, a lot of great actors and and um and and the, the the thing about Donna Reed's character. So, like again, the chemistry between her and and James Stewart is unbelievable. But I think the best scene, and I'm jumping ahead here because it's part of one of her five questions, the best scene is when they uh, go on a date and I'm not, I'll I'll get into like actual details after the break when we talk about our favorite scenes, but when they go on their first date, I think like the chemistry between those two, it's like, I would, you would be forgiven to think that they're actually married or were dating in real life at that time when making the movie.
2: Yeah, I know they, they have really good rapport and it just seems also casual. It seems also natural between them. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and in true capra form again why everybody always thinks he's super hokey like these dates start out kind of hokey but then there's just this little, there's definitely an adult edge to it I, I always point to that scene as an example of humor from back then how it can still translate to today because that scene always makes me laugh at the end when she loses her robe and jimmy stewart's contemplating not giving it back to her or at least, like, dancing around the subject a little bit.
0: Which, again, very racy at the time, 1946, because of the...
2: The Hays Code.
0: The Hays Code. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. But, but okay, so we actually reviewed this movie on, on the podcast way back. Like, way back in, like, 2015, 2016. I can't remember when. And Allie McKinnon was the co-host at the time. It was me, Simon, and Allie. And Allie gave this great read on Mary Hatch, her character, and how she was the reason why George Bailey's whole entire life was messed up. And she's like, it's because of her. And so at the beginning of the movie, we get to see the young George Bailey and we get to see where he works. And so he goes to his, his workplace and he's making the young girl, I think it's like a, some kind of like milkshake, right?
2: Or, or like an ice cream sundae kind of, yeah. Right.
0: Now, is it not Mary who whispers in his bad ear that you're going to love me for the rest of your life?
2: She says, I'm going to love you for the rest or I'm going to love you as long as I live.
0: Right. So the way Ali explained this was she said that she sort of like
2: cursed him, cursed him.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and it's not just that scene. There's three specific scenes, but that's the first of the three scenes. And the second scene, I think, is when they go on a date and they throw rocks at the house. So the, the idea is that if you throw a rock and you make a wish, if you break a window, your wish comes true. And Mm -hmm. so the idea is that she wishes that he will forever stay with her, which means that he will forever be trapped in this town. But there's three crucial scenes in the movie where you can actually make an argument that Mary is the reason why George, George Bailey's life is never really great. I mean, it is kind of great. I mean, we could get
2: into this, but it's wonderful. It's a wonderful life. George Bailey has
0: (laughs) right before I watched this movie earlier this week, I had to go over my, uh, my insurance plan for work and I was like, wow, I'm actually worth more dead than alive. And I think that's an actual <laughs> line from the movie. So I watched the is. movie and I'm like, holy shit, that's me, right? That's me still stuck in a small town. That's me who whose life is worth more dead than alive. You know means I was like thinking about this and I'm like this is why I find the movie so depressing. Cuz there is a lot to be said about capitalism and small towns and how hard it is for a small towns and small businesses to succeed. Uh, in this capitalist society, right? And so you have a guy like Mr. Potter who's trying to buy up all of the businesses and all of the land so he can raise the, the prices and there's no competition, nobody has a choice but to actually pay whatever he charges because he owns everything, right? And so you have George Bailey, who's the quote unquote good banker who's trying to actually help people. But the thing is, by helping everyone, by making, he has to make these sacrifices. And every time something good's gonna happen in his life, he has to make a sacrifice, we see it right away from the from the beginning of the movie where he has a chance to to leave the town and go chase his dreams, but he decides to stay back because his dad passes away, and he has to take over the business, right?
2: Yeah, and, and he doesn't have to. It's just that circumstances arise where he, he is faced with doing what he wants to do versus with knowing or doing what he knows he probably should do, what's right. For, for everyone, for everyone.
0: And it, it, it happens again when he gets married and he's supposed to go on his honeymoon and he can't even go on his honeymoon because there's this big crisis and he has to give all of the money that they save for the honeymoon to the townspeople in order for everyone to get by until the banks reopen. Uh, throughout the whole entire film, he's told, he's always getting screwed. Every time he's about to get a lucky break, he needs to help someone out in order to help someone out or help the town out. He has to make this huge, giant sacrifice, right? And so that's what I find kind of depressing about the movie because he's a really good guy. He's like the nice dude in the town that everyone likes and everyone depends on. Everyone kind of like leeches off of, but he never actually gets to follow his dreams. So at the end of the movie, I wouldn't go so far as to say it has a depressing ending. Like I've read some film essays where they kind of try to argue that the ending is super depressing and i wouldn't go so far as to say the is super depressing because at the end you could argue that he has all of these friends who surround him who are there when he really really needs to help he still has his four kids he still has his wife he still has a roof over his head he sells a lot more than a lot of people do have
2: right well yeah and i would i would always argue because he said he wanted to do something big he wanted to build things he wanted to make an impact right and have influence and the whole point of that ending is that of all the people that he knows who all got to go off and do their own thing, like Sam Wainwright, like his brother, and, and do all these famous things where they're considered important, in the end, he's more important than they are because he has been helping everybody out and they all rush to his aid. Like as, as soon as he needs help, they are all there because they all know that George Bailey is necessary for this world. And so more more so than they are.
0: Right. So it's not, it's not necessarily that it's depressing because of his life, because of what you just said at the end of the day, he is like more important, quote unquote, than a lot of these people when it comes to helping everyone out. But it's because of everyone else who's trapped in the town. It's because most people can relate to the people in this town where they are always worried about paying the bills, the next paycheck, living paycheck by paycheck, not having enough money, not being able to support their family, you know, stuff like that. That's what we can all relate to. And that's why it, it sort of is like the greatest Christmas movie ever made. Because when the holidays come around, like there's a lot of people that get depressed. There's a lot of people that can barely keep up with paying the bills. And you have to worry about things like buying Christmas gifts. And it's really, really, the de- it is. I think it's a really depressing time of the year. And there's a reason why studies say that, there are more breakups in the month of December than any other time of the year. And there are more suicides in the month of December than any other time of the year, because it's a really depressing time for a lot of people. It's a very emotional time.
2: Sure. And there's a lot of pressures put on people during December, just with, with holidays. And,
0: and so, and so that's the thing. Like, I don't, I don't think that the end of the movie is depressing, but I do think that the build up, the first hour and 45 minutes is depressing.
2: It is, I, and I always tell people like, don't get it wrong. Don't don't look at the reputation that *It's a Wonderful Life* has. the The first, the build up to this is going to make you want to slit your wrists. Is the ending corny? Yes. Is it absolutely necessary? Absolutely necessary. Because if you did not have that corny happy ending. That this movie would be just about a man's failed dreams and and who really wants to watch that it needed to be sort of depressing like I simply I, I, I also like deeply affected by George Bailey's failures to get out of that town because getting out of town not everybody has this this inclination of course but I also wanted to do that I felt like George Bailey when I was that age I, I wanted to get out of where I lived and travel and see the world and do Big great things and you know watching him fail at every turn not due to his own his own judge you know his own decisions or anything like that but just because the universe is screwing him over it's very frustrating It's, it's it's incredibly frustrating movie to watch if you are one of those dreamers because you completely get what he's going through because most dreamers ultimately will be frustrated at some point in their lives um so, yeah, you can definitely understand what's happening. And I I just needed – that ending is very, very necessary to make you know that even though you never really accomplished what you set out to do, that didn't mean that you didn't make an impact. You still made a huge impact somewhere. Maybe you just couldn't see it at the time. And that's what's so great about this movie. Is, is, and, again, that's where I think that Capra – it's not about even – Politics for him. He has this idea of how people should behave, and you see this in some of his other movies. This essential goodness that they should have, um, that they should strive for. I should say, like he's trying to to show us how we sort of what, what what an ideal version of us would be. He's not reflecting reality so much as showing you what his fantasy is, and in many ways, that's what Bedford Falls is. As far as he's he's showing a small community where it isn't true that everybody sticks together in this small community. He's not showing like some sort of fantasy version that, that that's hokey. He's showing realistic flaws. You know, this town is kind of split up and when the chips are down, a lot of these people like when the bank run happens, you know, they're perfectly willing to throw aside that one guy wants all his money. Doesn't care. He doesn't care how much, what you know, would, would get him to survive for a week until the banks reopen. No, he just wants it all right now. They're perfectly willing to throw somebody else under the bus if they need to. Um,
0: it's it's the idea of how a community sounds like a great thing to have. But when you actually build a community, you realize that at the end of the day, people will think of themselves first and foremost. And someone yes. will screw over their neighbor if they have to in order to survive.
2: And Because you... they're all different. And that, that's, I think, what the point is. Like, So many movies look at these small towns as if everybody in them is the same and shares all the same values. And that's not necessarily true in this movie shows people that want to get out like violet and sam wainwright and people who like to stay like donna reed's character you know mary wants to stay and there are so many others like Bert and ernie seem completely happy by the way obviously the inspiration for jim henson's Bert and ernie i never looked this up but come on it's got to be right yeah it's
0: got to be yeah
2: um but yeah so there are lots of people who want to stay and love the small town you've got martini who clearly you know loves being there and and you've got a guy like potter who could who you know probably could do well off in New York City but but can, but sees a place for him to take advantage of but yeah then there's the characters like George and Violet and Sam who want to get out of there and they want to go do other things so a, a small town is made up of lots of little things and I, too often in Hollywood movies you see it completely washed by the, the exact same character over and over and over again like for some reason producers think that and writers think that every single person in a small town thinks exactly the same and shares the exact same values what i love about bedford falls is it is it's a real community where there are a lot of different kinds of people this this small town feels more real to me even though it's a fantasy small town it feels more real to me than than so many small towns that i've seen in movies
0: um really quick it's really interesting that this movie is the inspiration for bert and ernie and it happened one night is the inspiration for Bugs Bunny. <laughs> right. Also, I made a mistake. So the scene in which he has to kiss her, the telephone scene, it was unrehearsed yeah. and it was the first take. So because he did such a good job or they did such a good job, Frank, Frank Capper decided to use the first unrehearsed take, but they did have to cut it because of the censors. So the kiss is oh. apparently too long
2: yeah yes because you could only do it for a certain a number of seconds I right believe. unless you're
0: hitchcock and you find a way to get around it
2: yeah which means you just keep them coming up for air and then going back constantly right.
0: yeah also you mentioned the town and the town feels so real but it's because they actually built a town like it's just i wanted insane. to get into that yeah, yeah three million dollars set which by the way three million dollars in 1946 and this is his independent film company making their very first movie. He spent $3 million building a set. I mean, that's unreal. Apparently, I, it had like over 75 stores and buildings, a main street, yards, like you name it.
2: Before I looked that up to prepare for this podcast, I mean, I'd never researched It's a Wonderful Life a whole lot. I, I liked it as a movie. I, you know, I'd admired, I always liked Frank Capra, and I definitely really liked this movie. I was like, I just assumed it was a real town. Like that they shot it in some small town. It just doesn't, it doesn't look like a studio backlot.
0: Well, it's weird because what the interview I read, and this is like way back. This is like when, I, when we first reviewed this movie, like way back in like 2015, 2016. Whatever interview I read, it was talking about a, a town in New York. So I think, the, I think the thing is, I always just thought or assumed that they filmed it in a small town in New York, but I think it's actually that the town was... Uh, constructed to look like a town in new york but yeah it's it's all done on a hollywood set the other thing that i didn't know either because like you i did my research this week because i just never really researched this movie prior but it's the first time that they used a specific kind of like fake snow they actually invented an effect for this movie to make fake snow that not only looked better on camera but that was like not cornflakes because before they used to use cornflakes. But the problem with cornflakes is when you walk around on set, you hear the crunching of the cornflakes, so it's a, it's a nightmare for the sound guy.
2: Yep, all the dialogue has to be re recorded then, and this allowed them to at least get some of the the, uh, the, the voice work on, on set.
0: So I'm trying to remember what it's actually called the type of snow that they use for this film. I think it's like Foamite, and so Foamite was actually created and invented for this movie so they can not use cornflakes also what's really interesting about this film so yeah so we talked about this i'm not entirely sure when it was like a few weeks ago we reviewed a movie and we're like why is the whole entire movie dubbed like it makes no sense right and it was like it was a movie made in the 90s um this movie they actually recorded the sound on set now yes it's a hollywood set so that makes it easier to say film in a movie on on like you know in the middle of like new york city but still getting good sound on a movie set is the hardest thing to do. And yet, mm. the sound quality is amazing. It's but great. It's yeah, it's it's fantastic. But the weird thing about this film is there's a lot of odd jump cuts, which I've never noticed before, yes. especially early on in the film. Yeah, it's like it's weird because I, it made me realize that Frank Capra barely uses any real close-ups. Except for the five shots that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast where we get this extreme close-up of his face where it looks like a wide-angle lens or a fisheye lens. But he rarely gets close-ups of the characters. We do get the telephone scene where we get the close-up of, of uh, Mary and George. Uh, and I guess the scene at the end when all of the kids jump on him and he's being overwhelmed by all the love and everyone like b- bursting into his home. But I, like, honest to God, there's barely any close-ups unless it's really needed. Like, the, the scene in the bar when he starts to cry, apparently, apparently like, Frank Capra, like, moved in or zoomed in or dollied in, and therefore the quality, the grain, uh, the quality of the picture gets grainier because the lighting wasn't set up properly for them to move the camera in like that. But because his performance was so unexpected, because he actually started to cry, like, you know, it wasn't actually him acting, he was actually crying, that Frank Capra just his instinct told him to move the camera in. And so therefore that specific part of the camera is a little grainy. But the point is there's very few close-ups in this movie. There's a lot of fire shots. And because there's a lot of fire shots, he didn't really have any footage to work with to actually do specific cuts without showing the jump cuts. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it was very weird.
2: Yeah. There's one specific instance where he cuts into a shot that is seriously just barely zoomed in a little bit further and it's like the the oddest jump cut it's 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 framed the exact same way only it's zoomed in just a tad and he has to cut to that and it's clearly because he wanted different performances uh that he's trying to get the best performances out of there i think why some of these jump cuts are happening but this is you know (laughs) example of why you get coverage i guess but that was his filmmaking style Uh, And it works for the most part. There really are, like you said, it's about three or four. And they are mostly, I think there's one towards the end, but the other three are towards the beginning. But they mostly, you'll notice them for like a second and then move on. But that was something I I, I remarked to myself as well. I was like, that's a little little shaky there. I've never noticed that in any of his other movies too. But uh, I can only assume it's just because he wasn't. When he got into the editing room, he he saw things in certain performances that he really, really needed. And he was like, ah, screw it. I got to do it. <laughs>
0: See, I think that's what happened, too. Um, I mean, it could be that maybe someone had made a mistake. I don't know. But I think he was really more concerned about the actual performance that he was getting from the actor. And so he didn't care if he was getting a jump cut. Most people maybe didn't even realize it was a jump cut when watching a movie for the first time. The other thing that I find really surprising is that the actual movie is based on a short story. Yeah. Had no idea it was based on a short story.
2: Yeah, and he had sent sent it out as a pamphlet to his friends. But uh, yeah, this thing was passed around. Cary Grant uh, at one point was considered for the George Bailey role, although the story was very different back then, apparently. George Bailey was going to be a politician, and he was going to be showing what his life would have been like if he didn't go into politics, but instead was a business owner. Needless to say, I think it worked out. I think the, the rewriting of this script probably uh, helped the movie. Uh, I think turning it into a small town thing has made it connect with more people for years and years and years. And I I think had you made it too specific, it would have uh, have just been lost to time.
0: So I heard that in the original story, the character of Mary, like, you know, when George no longer exists and he has to go back and visit the town with um, Clarence. Yeah. And so we see Mary walk out of, I think, a library. Library. And she's very reserved and shy and timid and she's single and she never left the town and so on and so forth.
2: She's what would have been called a spinster at the time. A
0: spinster, yes. I just learned that word. Um, So in the original story, apparently that's not what happens to her. In the original story, she actually marries the guy who she's originally speaking to on the phone.
2: Oh, Sam Wainwright.
0: Yeah, her boyfriend, right? And he's Mm -hmm. actually a rich dude who lives in New York City. So I think in the original story, it's completely different where she actually has kids and she's wealthy. But for whatever reason, Frank Capra didn't want that. So he completely changed her character for this movie, which I find really odd because the thing about her character is I kind of feel like she would never, ever just sort of like settle to be single and live in the same small town without ever falling in love and having kids. That's the one thing about the movie that I always found strange.
2: That's interesting because I buy it's set up early on when she's a little girl where she says, George Bale, love be for the rest of my life i think that she was in love with george bailey and that was it and if there was no george bailey well the thing is if he never existed though would she have felt that way you're right that's kind of that's very strange um but yeah i don't know that, that's an interesting one would she has been as happy with somebody else i don't know um i think you could have found a way to actually not have her just be like this library single librarian who never especially in a small town that would still be kind of I mean, I don't know. She could have got out of there. She did go to New York at one point, and, you know, they talked about her coming home from school. So it's not like she was this shy little mousy kind of person uh, to begin with when she was young. She was adventurous and, you know, uh, outgoing. So I think you're right. The odds are that would not have happened to her character. That does ring a little false now that i think about it so
0: so the thing is i'm going to jump ahead so one of the five questions we have in the podcast is what would you change if you could change anything and if i had to change something i would change that scene because like by making her say wealthy and have kids during that specific scene when he goes through this alternate universe it doesn't really change the rest of the movie
2: Here's the thing, he needed, so he needed to show why George Bailey was, his his presence was necessary, right? And so how do you do that with the Mary character if she's married and has kids and is happy somewhere else? You needed to show Mary being unhappy, and so Capra was thinking, like, because George Bailey has made her happy, right? His presence has made her happy. He's given her a family and a husband that she loves and everything like that. So I, if you're Capra and you're thinking, like, all right, I'm going through the town and I'm making, you know, I'm showing how... His mom is not happy anymore, and you know Uncle Billy's in an insane asylum now, and even Nick, the bartender, isn't a very happy guy anymore, right? All because George Bailey's not here, and, and, and Gower, the, the, the pharmacist, is now the, the town drunk and just a, a pathetic guy in a really sad scene. I always, I always hate that scene um, when, they, when they spray Gower with the water and then, and then throw him out of the bar. Um, but it was like, okay, so how do you make Mary's life miserable now that George isn't here? And it's like, well, what do we take from her? I guess she had a family. <laughs> Let's take that. And you know, she had a husband. Let's take that. But what else did Mary have that, that Capra could take away from her to show how important George Bailey was? And I think that's where that sort of stems from. It doesn't it doesn't ring true to her character, but it rings true to what he's trying to do with the end of the movie. So in that sense, like uh, we can get into this later when you discuss it as uh, one of the things you want to change, but. I find it to be acceptable from a structural point of view. It just doesn't, you're right, it doesn't fit the character. It it would be hard to find something, though.
0: Well, we're actually at the 45-minute mark, so I guess we can cut the break, come back and do our five questions, unless you have anything else you want
2: to add. No, no, I mean, that's fine. Let's do that. We can dive in a little bit deeper into some specific scenes. This movie has so many good ones, so many interesting ones. It'll be sort of interesting to see. What we um, all pick, but yeah, I always I always stress to people this is one of the movies I'll close on this. This is one of the movies that I talk about the most with people um, when I'm recommending older movies uh, because I know that some people don't like film noir and they're not gonna you know begin to double indemnity even though I think that's one of the best screenplays I've ever written. It's amazing dialogue, right? An amazing cinematography. It doesn't matter. They're not into noir. The noir attitude little too hard nose for them and i know that a lot of people don't want to sit down and watch three and a half hours of gone with the wind even though i think that that movie is just it's mind-blowingly good to me um how they accomplish that
0: still haven't seen it
2: oh god it's just <laughs> such an incredible it. work of cinema and i hate using the word cinema because it sounds pretentious but you have to sound pretentious when you're talking about gone with the wind because it's that good uh, but i'll use it's a wonderful life a lot but uh, there's always this perception that it is a cheesy corny dumb sentimental movie. And I I try I fight against this all the time with people and I want any listeners who have not seen this movie do not think about it that way. Is there corniness in it? Yes. Is there sentimentalism? Yes. Frank Capra always has those things in his movies. But is there absolutely raw like edginess to it? Yes. Is it depressing? Yes. <laughs> George Bailey goes through a ton of shit in this movie and he comes out clean the other side only because of a corny ending. So it's kind of like George, but Jimmy Stewart's Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Not that he gets suffers that much, obviously. See, but it's I, just that I, don't,
0: I don't think this movie is at all corny. Like I know you've used that word, especially for the ending, but moments, there are moments, there are, that are moments, you know, right? Exactly. But you know, the, the thing is, right, is everyone in the small town throughout the whole entire film is shown to be very friendly, to know each other, to know everybody's names. Like you're walking down the street, the cop knows your name. You just have to tap on the side of your car And you're signaling to the cop that there's something wrong and the police officer who knows your name and you know his name is going to follow you to make sure that the crazy man in the back of your cab isn't going to kill you type thing. You know what I mean? When you're walking down the street like Violet and every man turns his head, every man knows who you are. (laughs) Everybody talks to everybody. Everybody knows everyone's name. Everyone knows everyone's business. So for me, it's not uh, a far stretch of the imagination to, to believe that all of these people would show up. Arrive at his house at the same time to deliver the good news and give him the money because he himself did it earlier in the movie when he leaves his honeymoon to go to his business to give everybody money like they basically return the favor. And I don't think it's a I mean, I don't know. I don't like I don't know exactly where this movie is supposed to take place in terms of like where in the United States of America, but
2: it's supposed to be everywhere. I, like, Capra intentionally wanted it to be everywhere.
0: I can imagine a small town having this kind of, like, camaraderie between it, between its residents. Like, I can really see a bunch of people actually showing up and doing something like that. So, I think a lot of people think it's, like, far-fetched or it's unrealistic. But I think this movie is incredibly realistic. And I think it's, like, at times cynical and dark, but yet sweet and hopeful. I think, I think most people can relate to the characters in this film. And I'm not just talking about George Bailey, but I'm talking about just about everyone in in the town, or at least anyone who's lived in a small town, uh, anyone who has like a dream of being successful or famous or rich or whatever it is. Right. And the weird thing about this movie is the movie itself sort of, sort of like feels like a, a representation of the actual character, George Bailey, because when the movie was made, it was not a success. Nobody cared about this movie. <laughs> Like, I mean, yeah, it got some Academy Award nominations, but it never won an award. It took decades, like 40 years for anyone to actually start really appreciating the movie. For it to be deemed a classic, and one of the greatest movies ever made, one of the greatest performances ever made, at least when it comes to American Hollywood movies. You know what I mean? It took forever for the movie to actually be recognized as a, a work of art, and some people would argue a masterpiece.
2: Yeah, and I'm not sure why that is if it was because it was the feel good movie didn't uh, it wasn't necessary after the war or if it was because it really is so depressing. Again, this movie has a reputation, for, you know, that sometimes I think is undeserved. People who've seen it know, but people who haven't seen it believe in this when I say corny, I say that's the perception, right? The perception is things are corny. Does it I, I, it does have corny moments in it. Like I said, I do not think the ending is and it's completely realistic and earned. That's always the important thing. Is everything that happens in the movie earned? Yes unquestioningly um so corniness or or, or hokeyness the Capra just had a fondness for that so did john ford he always had some crazy old coot in his rocking chair out, you know saying something stupid in one of his in one of his westerns like some of those old directors had a fondness for for yeah. and Capra's one of them
0: well you know um, i really 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 like billy weiler he's one of my favorite filmmakers of all time but mm-hmm. how many people have seen the best years of our lives that movie was released in yeah. 1946. It's the movie that everybody went to go see at the movie theater. It was like the biggest box office hit of 1946. It won all of the Academy Awards. But in 2020, how many people have seen The Best Years of Our Lives? Everyone's seen First, It's a Wonderful Life.
2: Yeah, or at least heard of it. You know, if even if you've never watched it, sit down and watch it. You've at least heard of it. And I highly recommend you sit down and watch it. Because it is a fantastic, fantastic movie. But we're going to uh, talk a little, in a little more depth about that, a little more detail about that when we come back from the break. Um but first here's another clip from It's a Wonderful Life.
1: Just a minute. Now hold on, Mr. Robert. just a minute. Now you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny annie building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was why well, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Brody, here, you're all businessmen here. do not make them better citizens, doesn't make them better customers. You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them, until they're so old and broken down that they, they you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about They do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you will ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about. I know.
2: All right. That was another clip from It's a Wonderful Life, and we have reached the end portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions and as usual we always like to start off positive even though i think we've been pretty positive anyway on this movie because it's a wonderful movie uh we always like to ask what is your favorite scene so rick what is your favorite scene from it's a wonderful life
0: i want to say the telephone scene but i don't think it's my favorite that might be the best scene i don't know but my favorite scene is a first date I love everything about the first date. I love the way it's scripted. I love the performances. I love the chemistry between Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart. I love what he's wearing. They have the dance. They fall into the swimming pool. They have to change out of their clothes. She's basically naked under the robe. He's wearing this sort of like jailbird outfit. It's really
2: weird. No, it's a football uniform. This is something like you'd only maybe get if you had watched. It's a very old football uniform.
0: Okay, so it must be like a high school football uniform
2: yep that's he's exactly in high it school is. okay yep
0: so um the thing about this movie is that it is this movie about a man named george bailey who has serious regrets about his life who's really depressed and every time something good's gonna happen he has to make a huge sacrifice to help someone else out but it's also a love story because the whole movie revolves around these two characters and i would argue that just about every single decision he makes throughout most of the movie is because he's a good person but also because yeah he does fall in love with mary
2: you didn't trap him. Like, he does fall in love
0: with her. Right, yeah. Some people say she traps him. Like, like the thing is, I was kind of, like, sort of joking about my friend Allie's theory about how Mary curses him. I don't think Mary, like, traps him in, like, a negative way. I think the two of them just fall in love like most people do, and a lot of people, when they fall in love, they never actually leave the small town because they end up having kids and, and bills yep. to pay and mortgage, and that's just life, right?
2: It's a common story.
0: It's a yeah. common story, which is, again, why most people can relate to these characters. But I think... Their relationship is so necessary to keep viewers invested because if not, then this movie really becomes depressing. It becomes sort of like yeah. Marty. It's like about this like really depressing man who turns into like an alcoholic and has thoughts of suicide and it, it, it becomes too much. You need her in the movie. She's like the bright light at the end of the tunnel. Which I, mean, I guess people can argue is kind of Clarence, but Clarence is kind of kind of a goof, no offense, I know he's an angel. But I don't really think Clarence does anything, I don't really think Clarence does much, I think George does all the work. I think Clarence, like he has no <laughs> idea, he's like the worst angel in the world, no wonder why it takes him so long to get his wings.
2: <laughs> he has the idea of showing George what his life would be like, but other than that, outside of that, Clarence kind of just lets George figure it out himself. I mean, he is there to talk to him, but he's kind of an idiot too. He's smart and stupid at the same time. But yeah, I do think that, uh, that that their relationship, buying their relationship is absolutely necessary because otherwise it would be torturous. You know, somebody stuck in a, in a loveless marriage or in a marriage they didn't want to be in. Um, it's pretty obvious that he does want to be married to Mary. This isn't a trap. He's fighting it, especially early on. And that's what that telephone scene is all about. He's trying to resist it because he doesn't, he wants two things at the same time. He wants to be married to Mary, he wants to take off out of this town and, and go do his own thing on, a, on his own. Um, but he can't have both of those. so he he makes his choice. Uh, and it turns out she's a very adventurous person anyway and they actually get along they would get along just fine and would have gone on a, you know a honeymoon, traveled a little bit and you know I'm sure they would have done all those things and it's just bad luck again. Runs the interference. But yeah, that date is a, is a great example of those characteristics, by the way. It shows her to be an adventurous person, an outgoing person, like kind of up for anything sort of sort of stuff. And it's got some, some of that humor I was talking about that I think that this movie does very well. There are very, very many funny scenes in this movie. I love the old man out on the porch. Uh, also another one of those just like fake Frank Capra regulars. I cannot remember his name, but he's great. Uh, he was also the mayor from the Andy Griffith Show, if any, if we have any listeners who are, uh, who are older than me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's a great scene, and it, it encompasses a lot of different things. It has sort of the romance, it has lighthearted humor, and then it also has a little bit of that serious philosophy of what George and and Mary are all about, as he talks about what he wants to do with his life and, you know, what she wants and all that kind of stuff. Um... My favorite scene is the bank run. Which comes not too long after the phone call. But I love, you know, from the start of the honeymoon to where the bank runs happen, to where George has to, you know, run in. One of those dolly shots of him running through the town, right? Like, there's so many of those dolly shots of him running through the town. Which I guess if you had built this whole town as a set, why not show it off with a few tracking shots? Um, but yeah, that to me, that... That scene encompasses what his relationship to this town is. And it's pretty blatant, but it also has a little bit of a dark edge to it, which I like. Uh, they are using him in some ways. They maybe don't care about him or know how much they care about him at this point in time. Like, they don't understand. That just This is this is to me like where you have somebody who's a visionary, right? Where something's going bad. And the mob of people panics. And there's this one guy saying, No, you don't have to. We can, if we're smart and we keep our heads, we can get through this. But the mob doesn't understand because the mob doesn't think. Um, and so, George's relationship to this town is sort of keeping everybody level headed so that they don't ultimately destroy themselves and i think that's kind of what everybody every citizen's job is i believe in a in a democracy like you're supposed to keep everybody rational you're supposed to stay rational to keep the world rational and if the world stays rational then everything works as it's supposed to but if it descends into you know irrationality then the place will just eat itself and that's when the potters take over Anyway, so I love I love that scene though because it displays George's temperament. It displays, uh, and Jimmy Stewart does this perfectly. How he can show you the character processing everything all at once. Um, it goes through like this extreme worry and the fear that when he walks in the quietness. But the way he's a calming presence for the town, even if he himself is not calm, he knows he's got to project a certain front he has to be that guy, but then it also gets a little bit desperate as people are wanting their money back. And he's pleading with them, like how this all works. Like, we need you. You're, we're all invested in each other. Essentially is what, you know, Frank Capra's small town mentality is like, it's not just you on your own. We're all in this together. And uh, I just love the way. And then again, Mary, it shows her, her complete willingness. Like she's with George on this. She, she's the one that, that offers up their honeymoon money. Um, so it's great for their relationship as well. Yeah, anyway, I love that scene. So with that being said, though, Rick, what would you change? If there's one thing you could change about it, It's Wonderful Life, I think we already we got a hint of this. What would it be?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I already kind of mentioned that you gave a good rebuttal as to why it's a bad idea, but I still think that you can change Mary's character in the alternate universe where she could still be unhappy, but she's not necessarily a, what did you call her, a spinster?
2: A spinster, yes. Spinster. An old maid, as they used to say at one point in time.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Because I just, I don't buy it. Like, I think her character would go on to at least marry. Like, I can't imagine, especially, like, no offense, but, like, this is a small town. And in the Mm -hmm. movie, she's, like, one of the most beautiful people in the movie. So, like, why would she end up a spinster?
2: Yeah, she had that other guy talking to her at at the... Yeah, you know, the high and, and, and again, and it's a
0: small change. That at the end of the day, doesn't really change much because this is just an alternate universe, which we all know is not really going to actually happen. It's just all in his mind because he's seen what what life would be like if he never existed, and he was never born. She she could have married an alcoholic, for example.
2: Yes, married in a, a loveless marriage, maybe, or or something like that. I think you'd have to show her kind of like Back to the Future too, right? Where you know his mom's married to Biff, in the the Trump version of Biff in the future, or in the in the present, nineteen eighty five, the like the nightmare version. I think you got to show Mary stuck in something like that in order to show the impact that George had. If she was happy and had kids, then it would be George that was sad. So George never existing is, you know, making George sad.
0: Yeah, and, and also, like, just because someone's uh, a spinster um, doesn't necessarily mean they're unhappy. I mean, maybe she wants to be single, you know.
2: Yeah, I didn't think about that much back then. <laughs> <laughs> If you were in a small town and you were unmarried, you were, you'd probably be the butt of some jokes and some, and some sympathy, of course. People would be like, oh, you know, it's like that joke from Airplane, which we reviewed, uh, you know, a while back when the flight attendant is talking to the doctor, Leslie Nielsen's doctor, and he, she, she's like, I'm scared. You know, I, I'm just, I'm still, I'm 25 years old and I'm still single and we might all die. And then the other woman comes in, you know, the woman that had been panicking earlier and the doctor says, "Are you okay now?" And she says, "Yeah, I'm doing much better. You know, I know that we're in trouble, but at least I have a husband." <laughs> it's one of the, it's one of those kind of jokes. Like, if you weren't married back then, there was probably something wrong with, like, something was wrong with you, or you just lost out. Like, you were a loser in some way. And it's not that everybody would have necessarily ganged up on you, but they would have felt sympathy for you or empathy—not empathy, but but sympathy. They might have treated you a little condescendingly, like, "Oh." oh, you never got married. Oh, too bad for you. Um, yeah, so I think like that that's just the portrayal. That's just how it, how it would have been. Nowadays, that would never fly, of course, because there are lots of people that stay single, but a little different back then. You know
0: what? You know what, though? There is a line in the movie in which Mary says that she married George in order to not become an old maid.
2: Uh, yeah, Clarence says that she has become an old maid, I think, at this point. Um, and I know that, the see, the thing is, the movie was okay with George not getting married, because the, he has the line where, you know, he says, well, maybe marriage is okay for you and for Sam Wainwright or whatever, but, but not me. I want to be able to be on my own and travel the world and everything like that. Um, so, yeah, I... <laughs> I think it says it's okay for for him but she clearly wanted to get married also. I don't think it's necessarily even expected. It's not it, 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 the movie's not about like society expects her to get married. The movie's about she wants to get married and George didn't. So, I don't know if yeah, like the idea is that because she won, this is what she wanted since George didn't exist, that never happened. Like she didn't get what she wanted. And it's all because George didn't exist. It's a ridiculous no She would have married somebody, but if
0: George didn't exist, she would still be the same person. So in her head,
2: yeah.
0: it would be like she wouldn't yeah. want to marry anyone else. She wouldn't know why, but it's because subconsciously she's trying to tell her tell herself that this person is not right for her because she should be with George, but George no longer exists.
2: Exactly. That's what I think the movie's shooting for. It. I'm I'm with you in that. I don't think it quite works, and they could have found a better solution. But I think that's what it's going for. It's not supposed to be about making him sad. It's about him seeing she didn't get what she wanted, the life that she wanted, all because he didn't exist. And so he's supposed to feel guilt, like Mary, this this woman that he loves, is now sad in her life because he didn't exist.
0: Also, it's a pretty small town. How many, like, strip clubs do you need?
2: <laughs> I know, right? Pottersville's. I don't know, man. It's like the, that might have become the new Vegas. They had gone on just a little while longer. Good Lord. And what is happening to Violet in that scene, by the way? Is she getting throw, kicked out of a strip club? Like, for what? <laughs> that's what I want to know. Uh, yeah, that, that whole thing, that's hilarious. It's like everywhere's a bar in a strip club. Crazy. That's Pottersville for you. <laughs> that's why i love i love those shots of him running through the town all the all the tracking shots of him running through town
0: his look is modeled after the painting american gothic and he's actually in a wheelchair right in real life like he was sort of crippled or injured or something
2: i would be surprised uh, if he was older at this point and you know and needed a wheelchair to get around um i love his servant by the way that's just a little little touch when we're talking about things I would not change is the guy, the actor who plays his servant, who has not a single line, even though Jimmy Stewart like yells at him once. (laughs) He doesn't say a single thing. He's great. He gets yelled at all the time. Just a, what an existence that guy's got. Um, all right. So if there's what the guy would change, I guess if it were me, it would be some of the flashback stuff. I guess I, I like the scene in the drugstore. You know, and showing him getting slapped around by his boss.
0: Oh, I love that scene. I love the whole entire sequence. His interactions with the two girls, him getting slapped, him making the drink. I love the way he dresses. I don't know why people don't dress like they used to, like back in the forties. Like the style is so much better.
2: Oh, those kids are awesome. And that kid, that actor, uh, he's awesome too. And I believe he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington too, uh, as one of the uh, the, I can't the governor's his name, kids. No, me either. But he's great and uh i but i might change like the sled scene i might just delete that it kind of was okay with i didn't need to see i know those kids are kind of a little bit goofy some sometimes the flashbacks sort of get to me and sometimes they don't but when i watched it this particular time i was like ah, i don't really like that that the uh, sledding scene with the kids i love the the drugstore scene i just didn't need the the falling in the water doesn't work because it's so clearly fake
0: So the original story, that's not how it happens. The original story, they're playing, I think, baseball or football. And I think the ball goes into the property of Mr. Potter. And so he sets his dogs loose and the dogs chase the boys. And I think that's when they end up at the lake. And I think I could be mistaken, but I think that's when his brother falls into the the water. So it's kind of because of Potter. So they really villainize him really early in the short story.
2: And I think that would have been great because it would have been a good payoff. Like, they've had these interactions with – Potter would have been the scary man their whole life and everything like that. And the, and maybe that's why that scene for me doesn't have a lot of impact because it doesn't really tie into too much. Like, okay, his hearing – his hearing is is one of those things that doesn't really affect the story at all. It's not like he, he has a bit of bad luck because he doesn't hear a crucial piece of, piece of information it's just a device for later on i mean i guess they just used it to like oh to show that he really was in an alternate universe where he didn't exist cuz now he can hear out of that ear i think that's all they really have that for otherwise him, his loss of hearing means nothing to the story uh you
0: mean you mean george bailey's loss of hearing but that's why he yeah. doesn't go to the war
2: that's true yeah because
0: he saves his brother he loses his hearing on his left ear i think it's his left ear and because of that he's not allowed to go to the war so even like, going to war, like, to get out of this small town, he can't even do that because of war. Like, like he can't even leave town to go into, like, a nightmare of participating in World War Two. It's like he's stuck in this town.
2: But that's another thing where it's like, I don't think I needed to see that. Unless there was a massive payoff for the hearing loss, like I say, where he missed a crucial bit of information that affected the plot. I didn't need to see it. And um, I, just being told that he's kind of deaf and having him go through like the high school thing where he's always saying "huh," what? Say again. Um, that was fine. And then you would have been just understood. Like, and then there's the the bit of narration saying, "and George couldn't go off to the war." I remember you're right; they do narrate that now. The angels do. They're like George couldn't go off to the war because of his hearing, so he stayed at home and you know helped out in other ways. Um, I didn't need to see it. It's like the and flashbacks for me take up the flashbacks take up just a little too much time but uh, even though i do love young george i think a lot of it the, the stuff with jimmy stewart i wouldn't cut a single bit of it i would just cut that bit with the kids
0: all i know is i have um uh, a, a coat like the one he wears in the movie that i wear in winter sometimes when i go to church on christmas and uh i have a hat like that i love that look i love yeah. the way people used to dress in the 50s and the 40s
2: yeah everybody dressed a little more formal for one thing um even if you were not being formal, even if it was kind of rugged. Yeah, that kid's a great actor. Uh, I guess he really did get slapped too when that scene happened. He got slapped upside the ear and uh, caused his ear to bleed. <laughs> <laughs> Old George Bailey just can't catch a break. Even the actors who play him. Um. <laughs> all right, so this is going to be an interesting question because we always tend towards one way um, when it comes to movie, you know. Picking the MVP of a movie. There's always that one obvious answer. But I think there could potentially be a few answers to this one. So, Rick, who is your MVP?
0: Jimmy the Raven. That bird (laughs) was in, like, every Frank Capra movie. Maybe not every movie, but he was in a lot of movies, that bird. Mm -hmm. He's probably got more internet movie database credits than most people. I'm actually going to go with James Stewart. I, I think the movie rests on his sh- on his shoulders. I think the movie lives and dies based on his performance. I think it's one of the greatest performances ever for any like classic Hollywood uh, motion picture. I I think he's the heart of the movie. Clearly, he's a central character of the movie. I've already mentioned how great the chemistry is between him and Donna Reed. I mean, Frank Capra is an amazing filmmaker. I, he's Directed some of my favorite films of all time. I had the greatest romantic comedy of all time. Uh, I do think there's a lot of mistakes made in this movie in terms of, like, you know, decisions he made in in changing the actual original story to the production values. Like, you know, could be a jump cut or continuity errors. There's all kinds of like little mistakes here and there. But I think at the end of the day, like, it's Jimmy Stewart that people fall in love with when they watch this movie. Like, yes, it's the story. And it's that the ending that just like wins everyone over, but it's Jimmy Stewart. Like he's just incredible in this movie. He's so charismatic. He's one of the most likable actors because of playing characters like George Bailey. It's one of the most quotable films of all time. And, a lot of it is because of the dialogue that that he delivers and even if that even if the dialogue's written on the page right so he didn't necessarily write the script it's the way he delivers it and the delivery is so crucial to his performance and us liking his character so i'm gonna stick with the actor for once and not go with the director
2: yeah to me this is no question and i love capper too um i, I feel like well, first of all, there's never been a role more associated with Jimmy Stewart than George Bailey. Like, that is the Jimmy, the, the quintessential Jimmy Stewart role, I think, when people think of Jimmy Stewart, as opposed to, you know, some of his darker stuff. Because he did end up getting into, you know, westerns, and he, he did a couple of Hitchcock movies where he, he was playing, you know, maybe the nicest guys in the world.
0: No, but look, I, I, would, I would I would say that he's one of the top five greatest actors of all time if only because of the movies he starred in like vertigo to rear window to it's a wonderful life and his performances are always top notch but again i really do think that because he just came back from the war a lot of his performance is coming from his internal struggle is, is coming from his internal struggles in real life like i think there's a lot of sadness on his face but yet you yeah. see a lot of hope
2: Yeah, the desperation. I mean, there's there. He plays these scenes perfectly. He is the reason to watch this. Um, I mean, not he's not the reason to watch this. He's he is the glue that holds this together, though, more so than Capra's direction or anything like that. This wouldn't be necessarily the movie where I see Capra's direction as being his most outstanding. Um, It's good. And he has a lot of good shots and a lot of good state, some good staging that goes on. But it's Jimmy Stewart. He's he's the glue.
0: I can't. Decide, I think Rear Window is my favorite performance of his, but I think it's because I love that movie so much. But then I think of Vertigo. But then I think about this movie. It's like it's hard <laughs> to say which one's his actual best performance.
2: I know, I know. It, it's. I'm not going to go with Mr. Smith, even though I think he's incredibly charismatic in that one, and I love that movie more than I love *It's Wonderful Life*. I'm going to put *It's Wonderful Life* above that. That's going to be his Capra best. I think it's two sides of Jimmy Stewart. Like you've got his. His Hitchcock performances, because I think he's great in Rope too. Like, I his Hitchcock performances are different than his Capra performances, and it's John Ford performances, which were also different. I mean, I think that, um, and we already re- reviewed The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. I know that he's out of place in that movie as far as his age goes. His age, but yeah, but his performance is. is it's a different sort of thing, I think. A different sort of bag. What Capra wanted versus what these other directors wanted. And how he performed before the war and how he performed after the war. Because if you look at Sophia's story, it's very different Jimmy Stewart than after the war, Jimmy Stewart performances. So, yeah, I don't know. I look at him, and he's got both sides. But I, this is definitely one of his best. Is one of his finest, for sure. Um, top to bottom.
0: Okay, but, sorry, Jimmy the Raven's a close second, okay?
2: <laughs> that that bird is so well-trained. I uh, Every time I'm glued to the screen, to the bird every time he's on screen, I will say this. That bird is a scene-stealer. <laughs> and then they should have watched out for that. Uh, all right, so, uh, The Howard Hawks Test. A great movie must be comprised of three great scenes and no bad ones. So, Rick, does It's Wonderful Life pass The Howard Hawks Test.
0: Well, it for sure has at least three great scenes. I think the telephone first kiss scene is great. I think the first date walking back home scene is great. I think the scene you mentioned, the bank scene, is great. So it has at least three great scenes. I actually really like the ending, too. I think it has a great ending. Agreed.
2: It gets me every time. Yeah, It gets me every time.
0: (laughs) So, yes, it has uh, more than three great scenes. And I can't say it has a bad scene. We've mentioned how, at times, the movie can be corny. I think it's a product of its time. I don't think there's necessarily a bad scene. You can have a bad moment that can last maybe a a few seconds. But I don't think it has a bad scene.
2: That's what I would agree with. There are hokey moments in this movie there, but none of the scenes and, and even the one with the kids sledding, like I'd cut that out, but that's not really a scene. The whole scene, that's just a lead up to the drugstore scene, um, which is a great scene. So I, I would count that as well as, as, as a really good one. Um, yeah. So I, I can't think of anything bad. And that's why when I was cutting something out of this or changing something, that would be pretty much it. I there's, even the stuff with Clarence, which on occasion will have me rolling my eyes, it's all very necessary, and it's played pretty good. It's played just as well as you could expect something like that. And just when you think it's going – like, you you can't necessarily take Clarence's character. Capra throws in characters that that kind of mimic, I think, the audience's reception of it. Like, when, the, when they're first – after – Clarence jumps into the the river, and Jimmy Stewart jumps in to save him. And they're warming themselves up at that whatever that house is. I'm not really sure what that is a toll toll house or something. Um, that shack. That yeah, in. that
0: was a really weird house with cobwebs, and it was broken down. And
2: yeah, I don't know what that guy's job is there or what no that, idea. the purpose of that place. He might be just like taking tolls for the bridge. I'm not really sure, or he's just bridge maintenance. But uh, the, he throws in that guy as the guy who's just like he's spitting to, trying to spit his tobacco. And every time Clarence says something weird and stupid, this guy reacts how the audience is reacting to Clarence. And so it's at least funny. It lightens the mood a little bit. Like he knows he's doing some hokey things with a setup of an angel coming to Earth to, to help this guy out. He knows it's going to be a, a little corny. But he throws in a character to alleviate that who reacts to it as if it is hokey. So um, that, that always saves all of those scenes and prevents any of them from becoming, quote-unquote, bad. Um, yeah, so they're all very watchable simply because Capra realizes what they are. And, and he, he, he knows he has to have these scenes. They're, they're, they're vital for the movie story to work. But he also realizes like that they could, they could sink the movie if they went a little too mawkish, I guess. And so he's got a character in there that prevents that from happening. It's pretty smart. Actually, and every time Clarence is around, there's somebody to prevent the scene from going a little bit too far. Uh, so yeah, I would say it passes because I don't think it has any bad scenes, and it's got lots of great ones. Um, all right, that uh, all that being said, who do you see as the audience for this going forward? Do you think that you think there will be an audience for this going forward? Obviously, this movie has lasted a long time. We're talking until, since 1946, and I, I believe it still gets played on broadcast television by somebody i don't know who maybe nbc or something like that once a year um but is this a movie that you think will retain its legacy of being one of the great christmas movies or do you think it'll kind of slowly fade away uh
0: i mean there will always be an audience for this movie so long as people celebrate the holidays so long as uh people can relate to living in small towns and capitalism and and has, so long as people love movies, I mean, this movie's for everyone. Like, I people argue this is his best movie. I still think it happened one night this is his best movie. I think that this is the movie that the, a mass audience can fall in love with. Like, uh, I mean, I know people who are not who I know people who do not celebrate Christmas, like they're Muslim or Jewish, and they love this movie and they watch this movie every single year.
2: Yeah, and that's because this movie's about inspiring people to be good. It's 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 asking us with being better people.
0: I think the thing is, because it's always on... For a lot of people, their introduction to this movie is it's the movie that plays in the background when I go visit my family or when my family and I are are celebrating Christmas, but I've never actually sat down to watch it. Most people I know haven't actually seen this movie from start to finish, but that's the problem because if they actually sit down and watch this movie from start to finish, they'll realize that this is actually an amazing movie. It's not just a great Christmas movie. It's one of the greatest American Hollywood classic films ever made. It's one of the greatest Hollywood films ever made. It is somewhat a masterpiece. Even if it has its tiny flaws, I mean, I think Frank Capra says it's his favorite movie, and I think he said it's like his greatest artistic achievement.
2: Yeah, and that's I I can see him going for that. I think it encompasses all the themes that Capra Capra you know was striving for in his in his early work at least, or not not his early work, but in his in his work right around that time. You know, starting with maybe Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, uh, where he was. These are the kind of movies where I. They need to still exist because Hollywood doesn't, at least in my mind, make movies like this anymore, Uh, inspiring movies. They'll make sports movies that'll make you feel good at the end. But this is now movies turn cynical at a certain period of time and and they wanted to expose what was really going on. Right. So they they tell you the truth. And that's good. We need movies like that. We need movies to wake us up to what's going on and to. The things that, you know, to, to reveal things to us that we didn't know or that we maybe didn't believe. But we also need movies like this. And we also need movies to give us something to strive for. And I don't see a lot of Hollywood movies coming out anymore that give us something to strive for. This is Frank Capra's, like that's kind of what he did best. That's why I love Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It is not a movie that ignores the flaws in the system. It is a movie that wants the individual to overcome those flaws in the system. And that also is how I see it's a wonderful life. It doesn't ignore the flaws in a small town. Or the flaws in capitalism, or the flaws in anything in, in in American in American life. It wants the individuals and the communities to overcome that, to to work within those systems, but make them the best they can be by being the best people that they can be. And that's the kind of movie that I hope lives on. I hope there's there will always be an audience for that, as long as people still want to strive to get better and communities want to strive to get better and stuff like that. Like it's just a really good movie for you to 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 think about things to think about life it, it, and to think about yourself and your own place in the world um, movies like that are completely necessary i think i think that's one of the reasons that movies became such a popular art form is because they do they did make people think about those things and uh, i think it's wonderful life is one of the best ones
0: yeah and for anyone listening to this podcast if you haven't seen mr smith goes to washington you really should it's it's arguably the movie that put frank capra on the map like it made him a star and it's one of frank uh, sorry it made jimmy, jimmy stewart a star it's one of frank capra's best movies It was made in 1939 i think mm. uh, but that's the movie that really made jimmy stewart like a household name i personally love it happened one night which i also recommend a frank capra directed movie which stars um
2: clark the, gable and Claudette colbert the,
0: yeah, Clark Gable is just amazing. Claudette Colbert Cor- yeah, Colbert is amazing. Uh, it's a screwball comedy. I think it's the greatest romantic screwball comedy ever made, but those three movies are just essential viewing for anyone that considers themselves like a, a movie buff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It happened one night. I've got that DVD of that for sure. I've rewatched that many times. It's just, it's a great, it's a, it's a perfect example of a screwball comedy, kind of like his girl Friday. Um, but it's a completely different storyline, but, it, uh, has that same sort of whip smart rapid fire dialogue and just, just <laughs> some classic stuff that I think people will even recognize that still gets parodied today. Um, yeah. Mr. Smith to me is, is my, it's one of the most inspiring movies I think that's ever been made. I, I think it's, it's absolutely incredible. And I feel like everybody should see that movie. Uh, I think the world would be a better place if everybody saw that movie. <laughs> but um Yeah. It's a Wonderful Life is one of those as well. And so, yeah, I hope there's an audience for it going forward. I think anybody can connect to it, but you're right. They actually have to see it from start to finish coming in at specific moments. in this is how this movie gets its reputation, because when you don't connect some of those hokier things, some of those more sentimental things to what came before um you're not going to get it you're not you're you're just going to see it as a, on the surface as being overly sentimental and not understand that that sentimentality was necessary after the grueling like you know hour that came before showing everything that went wrong in George Bailey's life how he just consistently held back
0: the last thing i'm going to say is like george bailey the movie's curse is its biggest blessing because because it was a box office flop because it became public domain because nobody remembered the movie until like the eighties and then it became public domain. And then everybody started watching it. Like, yeah, it sucks that some people will just watch bits and pieces because it just happens to be on the telly. But at the same time, it's because of that, that the movies lived on. So it's up to you, the people to actually sit down and appreciate its greatness.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully people will, hopefully people will continue to do that. I, I hope that uh, it continues to get broadcast every year. just, So can new audiences can discover it um, and discover a different type of filmmaking, a different era of filmmaking. Okay, with that, we should probably wrap things up. Um, So, Rick, where can we find the podcast online? I know at the moment you cannot find me online, but I hope to change that in the new year the
0: best thing to do is to head over to the website Goombastomp.com. That's G-O-O-M-B-A-Stomp, S-T-O-M-P.com. You can find all of the podcasts at the website along with all of the links. But we are on YouTube, Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. Like, we're everywhere. But again, the best place to find the links is over at Goombastomp.com. You can follow the Twitter account, Sorted Cinema, and I will tweet every single episode every single week. But yeah, that's about it.
2: Yeah, and of course, check out like uh, Tilt Magazine um, on Goomastomp.com for a lot of movie stuff. And I believe we even have an It's a Wonderful Life article up there. Uh, I read it briefly that you had published formally from Sound On Site.
0: There should be two, actually. Um, so Tilt Magazine is basically the sister set of Goomastomp.com. And moving forward, we're going to be publishing, I would say, like about 95% of our film coverage on Tilt and no longer publishing it on Goomastomp. The podcast will still be on Goomastomp.com. We're sort of splitting our film coverage, but yeah. Tilt Magazine is uh, the place to go for movie coverage.
2: Yeah, yep. I hope to be writing for it next year. Get back to writing some reviews if movies come out, if they ever come out ever again. Uh, (laughs) But outside of that, we will be back next week before we take our holiday break. We've got one more podcast this year, and then then it'll be the holidays, and we'll be out. Until then.
1: Look, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. Yeah, Yeah, I
2: know, you told me that.
1: What else are you? What are you? You a hypnotist? No, of course not. Well, then why am I seeing all these strange things? Don't you understand, George? It's because you were not born. Well, if I wasn't born, who am I? You're nobody. You have no identity. Oh, what do you mean, no identity? My name's George Bailey. There is no George Bailey. You have no papers, no cards, no driver's license, no 4F card, no insurance policy. They're not there either. What? Zuzu's petals. You've been given a great gift, George. A chance to see what the world would be like without you.